millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon. Westminster is, of course, a big, busy borough with plenty happening within it. When we say Westminster, though, very often what we mean is the location for our podcast today, the Houses of Parliament. As we launch ourselves in that direction today, I wanted to say thanks to MJ, who has written in via the comments section on a previous podcast, and it was all about the Mother Black Cap pub that appears in the movie with Nail and I. MJ says it was actually in Westbourne Park, not in Camden Town, although it was uh, pretending to be. It was at 41 Tavistock Crescent and was uh, torn down in 2010. Thanks very much for that. Well, without further ado, let's head to the political heart of our city. It's Saturday, the 31st of January 2015. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey, baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone through from your front door. Listener, in the background of today's recording, many an echo. We're in, I think, the largest room in which we've recorded Londonist Out Loud, to my memory. Anyway, we're at Westminster Hall with me, Carolyn Shenton, who is an author and an archivist and an antiquarian, all sorts of jobs going on in your life. Hi, Caroline. Hello there. Nice to be with you. Likewise, yes, and I suppose a good place to start would be an audio picture of the room that we're in, which of course is not the commons, it's not the green benches and the mass ranks of politicians. This almost feels like an exterior that we're sitting in. We're on uh, park-style benches. The enormous flags here are towered over by a vaulted ceiling. Could we add some colour to that start of a depiction? Absolutely. Well, this is the great Anglo-Norman feasting hall of the Palace of Westminster, which has survived amazingly for over 800 years. And around us are the great stone walls built at the end of the 1090s by William Rufus with wonderful carvings around them. Uh, And then above us is the great hammer beam roof constructed at the end of the 14th century by Richard II with 26 
carved wooden angels, all with individual hairstyles and wing patterns, and all clutching a great um, coat of arms in front of them, looking down on us. And this is really the heart of Parliament, and in some cases the heart of the nation. This is the place where great trials have taken place, like the trial of Charles I, of William Wallace, Braveheart, of Thomas More... Um, and um, it's the location of many lyings in state, most recently of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother and Lady Thatcher. There's a lot of big picture stuff to cut into there. I can't quite overlook the detail, though, that it sounds as though Westminster Hall was without a roof for 400 years. No, it did have a roof, <laughs> but it was a, there's a lot of controversy, actually, about what sort of roof it had before uh, the 14th century replacement, but it certainly had a roof, probably a simple wooden roof, a plain pitched roof, maybe or may not, with um, columns holding it up. But it's always been this enormous size, so even when it was built, it would have been a, a major engineering operation to just have created a simple roof. But what we've got above us now, the later medieval roof, is one of the great masterpieces of medieval carpentry. We'll be talking about the remarkable survival, because it, is, it really is remarkable, uh, of this room. The room's not right. We've got to call it a hall. You just... It's a hall. <laughs> it's a hall. It's the, it, it's the largest secular hall from the Middle Ages in the world. And the reason for that, of course, is because of the book that you wrote that propelled you into the limelight, which was all about the burning of Parliament and lots of famous figures mixed up in that. I wonder if we could think about exactly the way that democracy functioned in relation to the architecture that we're sitting in. As I say, we're all familiar with the televised version of what the Commons and I guess the Lords to some extent now is. How did this hall serve us? Uh, it's changed over the centuries. Uh, it's always been an assembly place for the monarch and um, their followers uh, since the earliest times. Over the centuries, it changed its function. It became the location of the law courts. Uh, for many uh, centuries, it was also the place where there were shops. So it was a sort of proto-shopping mouth, place where Samuel Pepys came to eye up the ladies. Um, and... Um, it, it was really a, a sort of social setting um, at the heart of Parliament and off it, um, before 1834, were two um, chambers which had once been part of the Royal Palace, the Chapel of St Stephen's, which had become the House of Commons, and then um, the Whitehall, um, which had been uh, part of the Royal Apartments and had become uh, the House of Lords. And the reason why today we have the House of Commons with the opposition benches and the government benches facing one another in those two rows of um, seating is because that pattern follows the seating pattern of the medieval chapel of St Stephen, uh, which was handed over to the use of the House of Commons at the Reformation. So, uh, so was it the case then uh, that uh, the, the debates and as such as they were never happened in here or is this uh, would there have been some sort of congregation where matters of the day were uh, hotly debated in, in this uh, place? Um, perhaps very early on but it wouldn't have been Parliament that would simply have been the monarch and his advisers. Um, the, um, the Lords had a permanent home within the building from the 1290s, uh, but the Commons only really came into uh, existence in the 1340s, and in any case, um, 
Parliament wasn't always based at Westminster. At the time, uh, in, the, in the later Middle Ages, it would travel around the country wherever the king was. So it could be in York uh, or other places. Um, so it only really starts to settle at Westminster in the later Middle Ages. Right, because it followed a pattern that was a bit more like our present, I don't know, G7 or something like that, where, where you'd have a summit at a convenient location for everybody to exactly turn up. So. But it wasn't, we didn't have a consistent parliament. No, that's right. Parliament was... It's always described as an event in the Middle Ages rather than an institution. It happens when the king wants it to happen, when he needs his advisers, uh, his barons, to come together to allow him to grant a tax, usually to pursue a war. Good. We perhaps could turn our attention to your book, which is all about the day that Parliament burned down. And uh, I remember there was a big live tweeting event that went on... How long ago is it now? A couple of years? 16th of October... Um, well, last year, in fact, I did one. Oh, was it really last year? Yes, well, I, 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 did one, I did one two years ago as well, but uh, I do it every other year. <laughs> and, what, and what goes on there? Uh, well, that's when um, I take the story of the fire, uh, the story of the 16th of October, 1834. And because there are such rich sources for what happened on the day, uh, from eyewitness accounts and newspaper reports, it's possible to do an almost minute-by-minute tweet of of the events of that day over 24 hours Um, and so uh, yes I've set up all the tweets in advance um, and then just let it run its course on the 16th of October and uh, people seem to enjoy it and even though they know in many cases what happened at the end people still get gripped by the story as it goes through. So it's a, a, a 24 style moment by moment recreation. Absolutely, yes. And one of the reviews of the book actually said, "This is a this is a, anybody familiar with 24 will 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 be familiar with the the structure of the book, um, which is a, also a sort of chapter by chapter, hour by hour recreation of what happened over the day and night." To my shame, I've not yet read your book. I think that might change this afternoon. Yes, you have to pick up a copy from the parliamentary bookshop on your way out. <laughs> what, what little I know is uh, that there were there were tallow candles. Or, tallow uh, scrolls or something like that being involved yes tally sticks tally stick not tallow at all tally sticks is what you're groping for there (laughs) maybe i should have read the book (laughs) no tally sticks are a um a form of um receipt for government income in the middle ages so they're a stick about six inches long um which are shaped on four sides and they have notches carved in them by officials in the Exchequer, which is the finance department of the medieval and early modern uh, nation. And um, the notches indicate the amount of money paid in um, by sheriffs who've gone off to collect taxes in the counties. And they come to Westminster twice a year, once at Easter and once at Michaelmas, and they hand over their bag of money. They get a tally stick and what they get is actually half the tally stick because the tally stick is um, carved and then the tally cutter splits it in half vertically. So the sheriff gets one half with the notches on and the other half is kept at Westminster at the Exchequer. Um, And what it means is that it's not possible for anybody to claim that the sum of money that's been paid in was wrong because all you have to do is to match up the two halves of the tally stick to show that the sum of money was correct because the notches themselves indicate how much money was paid in. So there's a a little hole for a halfpenny, a tiny little slice for a penny, a bigger slice for a shilling, for a pound, £10, £100, £1,000 and so on. Um, It's actually a really efficient way of uh, accounting for income in a pre-literate society because uh, if people can't read, they can't read bills or receipts but they can certainly 
um, count the number of notches on a stick and see that things match up. And we, and we get lots of vocabulary today from this amazing process that carried on until the 18th century. Um, one half of the tally sticks called the foil, the other half's called the counterfoil. So anybody who's used to doing sort of tombola tickets or raffle tickets will know what a counterfoil is. Um, and another word for the counterfoil is the stock, as in stocks and shares. And even the word exchequer, the government department in charge of all the money, gives us the word check. So this amazing system carried on until um, 1826, in actual fact, even though it had been abolished earlier, uh, a few years earlier. And uh, there was a pile of leftover tally sticks at Westminster, just around the corner from here, just outside the doors of Westminster Hall at the end there. Off to the right, there was a, a building which housed the Exchequer and there were two, uh, two rooms full of tally sticks that needed to be disposed of because they were no longer needed. And the decision was made, rather than burning them in a bonfire outside uh, in the open air, which was the original plan, it was decided because that would cause too much annoyance to the neighbours it was thought they eventually <laughs> <laughs> the clerk of works did something made a decision uh, to uh, to burn them somewhere else which in the end caused even more annoyance to the neighbours and he decided that it would be better to burn them in the underfloor heating furnaces of the house of lords chamber well that doesn't seem like an entirely stupid idea well it it was a it was a fairly stupid idea oh, okay. I, think. I, th- I think it's fair to say it was a fairly stupid idea because the furnaces were meant for coal rather than wood and the laborers who were tasked with doing this work um, shoved on the sticks much too quickly oh yes everybody knows you don't put wood pellets on a coal burning stove well there you go um, and uh, so the laborers were piling on the sticks over many hours during during the course of the day and that caused a chimney fire um, and uh, then the whole place um, went up really quite quickly and when we say the whole place well uh, it started it started in the lord's chamber um, and uh, it spread incredibly quickly there was a there was a fireball that lit up the sky uh, at about half past six um, in the afternoon um, and uh, what's happened there uh, and you can tell from eyewitness accounts is something called a flashover and I learned a lot about firefighting theory during writing the book and a flashover is when the gases from a fire in an enclosed space rise to the ceiling then they start to fall and they heat up everything the furniture and the fittings and so on and the the curtains uh, in that space and then they explode and um, create a great big rolling ball of flame and that's very clear from the newspaper accounts this is what happens in the early evening of the 16th of October and it lights up the London skyline and then huge crowds immediately flock to Westminster to see what's going on. Yes what was the general reception of this spectacle? Well it's interesting because um, in the past very little was, has been written about the fire and I think people in the past assumed that the crowd stood around cheering and clapping um, because the Houses of Parliament were burning down. But it's, it's clear from quite a lot of the um, eyewitness accounts and the uh, newspaper accounts that um, they were clapping. One or two people were arrested for cheering. <laughs> but um, they were clapping almost because it had become a cinematic performance. It was so outside their normal experience of light and light shows it was casting fantastic flood lighting onto Westminster Abbey it was reflected all the way down the river it could be seen from um, Windsor 26 miles away 
to the west because the king and queen could see it from the battlements of the castle. Uh, it was so overwhelming that, in fact, people stood there in awe. Some were terrified, some were frightened, some were injured. Um, and every time the firemen did something amazingly brave or another great shot of flame or sparks went up into the air, they clapped because they had no other sort of response to it, really. So the story of the cheering and the clapping is a bit more nuanced than people think it was. Uh, this is 1834. 1834. And what are your sources? What are you? How are you finding out about uh, not just the big stuff, but also the individual reactions of onlookers and so on? Well, it, this became a bit of an obsession for me over over a period of years when I was uh, I was uh, researching the book. So we should say, by way of an interjection, you've got special access to materials that other people might be envious of. Um, well, not special access. Everybody's got access to them. I, I've, I've worked for the Parliamentary Archives for the last 15 years. Um, That's but, pretty special. <laughs> it's pretty special, but we are completely open to the public and anybody can come and see uh, the records that I found. Um, but I, I just became a bit obsessed with finding out about the fire. So whenever I found something in a in somebody's letters or um, in a newspaper account I just stuck it in a drawer and after about eight years I discovered I got enough to write a book so that's how it came about but there are some wonderful diaries um, people writing to relatives in the country about what they've seen Um, newspapers were absolutely full of the fire for weeks and months afterwards and some there are some fantastic um, reports in the papers in the days following the fire of exactly what it was like and um, who was there and and some very famous figures were there including Dickens for example um, who at the time of the fire was not uh, a novelist he was at the beginning of his writing career and he was a parliamentary reporter so he was um, he was sitting in the uh, public or the reporters gallery of um, the commons and the lords each day taking down shorthand of debates and um, he was probably there at the fire and um, we have some, um, some really tantalising um, glimpses of, of what the fire might have seemed like to him um, partly from the newspaper reports that went to the Morning Chronicle for which he worked although they're anonymous it's possible that some of the reports there are actually written by Dickens but also I, I think that the fire influenced Dickens much more profoundly in terms of uh, how it appears in his novels um, because we know that in Dickens um, fire plays quite a major part in the denouement of um, of a number of novels so think about Bleak House and think about Great Expectations but perhaps a novel that people are somewhat less familiar with is Oliver Twist um, famous but not perhaps quite so famous as the other two that was written three years after the fire and um, in it there's this enormous blaze um, at a really odd point in the story it occurs when Bill Sykes has uh, beaten Nancy to death and he's fleeing London um, and he stops to put out a fire just like you would do if you were fleeing the forces of law and order you would of course stop to put out a gigantic fire and it Dickens obviously feels compelled to do to write a description at this point in the story of a gigantic fire in some unnamed enormous building and if you compare the description of that fire with uh, other eyewitness descriptions for example the eyewitness description by Pugin the uh, interior designer of the new palace uh, they're very very similar and there's no there's no reason to think that these men compared notes or anything so it's really tantalizing to think that Dickens reused what he saw, the, the idea of you know his place of work going up in flames before his eyes, in his later, in his later novels. My conspiracy alarm has just gone off. Uh, the interior designer of the new palace was an eyewitness at the burning down of the old palace. 
yes. I don't think you can you can't blame Pugin for that. <laughs> Pugin was in London because um, a relative had recently died, so he was looking after her estate. And you have to remember that uh, hundreds of thousands of people witnessed this fire, and anybody who was anybody turned up there. Um, and in fact, Charles Barry, the architect of the new palace, was travelling back from Brighton on the night of the fire, and as his stagecoach came over the top of the South Downs, um, uh, he saw the blaze below him and is alleged to have said, what a chance for an architect. So how's that for a conspiracy theory? <laughs> so I think it's all fitting together. I, I, I know it's only a couple of hundred years since the role of, of the relationship between God and the monarch were uh, very much at the centre of national events. Um, were we cynical enough by the point of this fire not to think that this was some sort of judgment from above? Oh, that's very interesting. There were lots of conspiracy theories, um, but the divine conspiracy theory um, is quite an interesting one. Queen Adelaide is alleged to have said that this was a judgment on Parliament for having passed the Great Reform Act of 1832, um, which, of course, was the act that started to extend the franchise, started to give the vote to uh, ordinary men. Um, uh, it didn't do it completely, but it, it began that process. Um, in actual fact, people at the time, what people thought in the newspapers was that this was more of a judgment for the passing of the Poor Law Amendment Act, um, which had been passed just a couple of months before the fire. And the Poor Law Amendment Act is the act that set up what we think of as the, the workhouse system um, which is, again, well-known from Oliver Twist. This has got so many resonances, and I know we're staying strictly apolitical for very good reason during this recording, but there are certain parties who've said some fairly outrageous things recently connecting natural phenomena to the passing of laws or the existence of certain minority groups. It's nice to know that that stuff is nothing new. Well, uh, in, in terms of minority groups uh, in 1834, um, people were very quick to come up with conspiracy theories and to blame the usual suspects... Uh, was it the Irish? Was it the French? Was it foreign anarchists? Was it spies? People, people were said to have seen um, somebody throwing a, a, a glass jug of turpentine against the building and um, a box of matches was found in the speaker's garden at midnight during the fire. And had this got anything to do with, um, with the fire? Who'd set it off? But in actual fact, um, they got... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. To the cause very, very quickly. Within about five days, the public inquiry that followed the fire that was um, led by the Prime Minister um, got to the cause, which was the incompetence of the clerk of works and the labourers um, and, and the, the palace staff who had not alerted 
the authorities to the fact that there was an emerging problem because there'd been smoke and heat coming from the basement all day but nobody had taken any notice and the Prime Minister declared it the greatest instance of stupidity on record so I'm afraid I'm always on the side of cock-up rather than conspiracy. What was the fallout for the people who'd done it? Oh, good question. Well, well, most of them, um, we lose them in the records and we don't hear from them again. They weren't sent to prison, nobody was prosecuted, but one person, we do know what happened to him, and that's Richard Webley, who was the clerk of works who made that fateful decision to burn the tally sticks in the furnaces. Amazingly, he wasn't sacked. He carried on as the clerk of works at Westminster until about 1840, which I think is astonishing, really, because it must have been incredibly embarrassing for him to have all the the salvaging and the clearance of this burned-out site and then to have Charles Barry and the Office of Works come in and start to set up all the the site for the building of the new palace. And he, he would have had to have been involved in that quite substantially. And also the fitting out of the temporary chambers, where, where were the Lords and Commons going to sit when their two chambers had been burnt out? Uh, he would have had to have been involved in that as well. So um, he must have had an embarrassing few years. And then in 1840, he was finally transferred off to Brighton. He was sent to be Clerk of Works at the Brighton Pavilion, another royal palace, under the care of the Office of Works. And um, that must have been a bit like going um, to a Siberian exile or something like that, because it was it was very unfashionable there by then. Of course, the Brighton Pavilion, built for George IV as his uh, sort of seaside plaything, wonderful oriental exotic um, uh, folly. Um, but it was very out of fashion by then. Victoria didn't like it very much, and she, she, she never went back after about the mid-1840s. Anyway, Richard Webley turned up there, and then a few years after that, finally, he was sacked and he was sacked for selling um, uh, scrap metal from the stores there on the black market. So he was sacked for that, but not for being instrumental in the burning down of the Houses of Parliament. That is remarkable. I was sort of expecting a fire at the pavilion. In in the same way that you often get uh, those piers in seaside towns that are a bit ramshackle and the upkeep is expensive and one day they accidentally and surprisingly catch fire. Insurance may or may not be claimed. Uh, I was wondering if maybe they sent Webley down there and, you know, just uh, throw away the tally sticks for us there, would you? No, I don't think it was quite like that. Although, sadly, the Brighton Pavilion did have a, did have a fire in recent times. Um, about 20 years ago um, that was arson and um, the wonderful, wonderful decorative fittings there were badly damaged um, but they've now been restored and uh, it's there for everybody to look at so just down, just down on the Gatwick Express from, from Victoria take you, a trip to Brighton, it's great <laughs> you, you, Do you live in Brighton? I don't live in Brighton. Oh, okay. I wonder why working with the Brighton tourist builders. You, you mentioned, before we started recording, you mentioned the involvement of a dog in all of this. I can't see how this is going to fit into the story. Ah, oh, right, yes. This is, this is my favourite character in the whole story. This is Chance, the celebrity fire dog mascot of the London Fire Engine Establishment. And the, the London Fire Engine Establishment was the, the private London Fire Brigade before the London Fire Brigade that we're familiar with today. Is, is it true that they would uh, see whether you ins- were insured with them before they put your fire out? Well, that, that's, that was true of most insurance companies, but the London Fire Engine Establishment was a new venture. All the insurance companies had pooled together to create this single um, company. Uh, and yes, the idea was that if you were insured, you'd get your fire put out, and if you didn't, you wouldn't. But on the night of the fire, the Houses of Parliament was such an important building that um, the the brigade came out um, and did it pro bono. Um, and their fire dog was their chance. And, did um, he do it pro bono? <laughs> I like it. Very good. <laughs> 
and he was there he was there um running up and down barking making a lot of noise um uh, and uh, he was a very popular figure with the crowds. He was very well known at the time. He would have been, if, he'd been, if Hello Magazine had been around today, um, he would have been on Hello Magazine every other week. Um, he was a true celebrity. Um, and um, we know he was there because Dickens mentions him um, in a parliamentary sketch that he wrote after the fire and mentions Chance being there. Um, and conf- com- compares his sort of barking and um, running up and down and being a nuisance and getting under everybody's feet um, favourably to an MP called uh, Mr Hughes Hughes, the MP for Oxford City, who was also running up and down barking, getting under everybody's feet Chance doesn't die at the fire we're pleased to know, he, he dies about a year later of natural causes, but he was such, such a well-known figure that the fire brigade decided that they wanted to have him stuffed, so they sent him off to a taxidermist to be stuffed um, but the taxidermist realised that he'd got a gold mine on his hands and so he sold him the dog onto uh, a fairground owner where the, and the fairground owner put chance on display for a penny a look uh, and the fireman got to hear about this and grabbed their dog back and um, finally he ended up in a glass case in their headquarters in Watling Street near, the, near St Paul's Cathedral. And there he stayed until the 1880s, when he was finally sold off for a farmer's benevolent fund. And we don't know where he is today, so I'm asking listeners of Londonist Podcast, if you happen to come across a dog in a glass case who might possibly be chance, then I'd really like to hear from you. It's singed around the edges. Yes, a little bit moth-eaten maybe, but um, he may still be around, so get in touch if you think you know where chance the stuffed fire dog is. <laughs> That's the most unique appeal we've done so far. Uh, we're going to stuff a word from our sponsor uh, into the gap between this part of the show and the next, in which I would like to find out what you do with your day. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30 day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and we're at Westminster Hall. And my guest is Caroline Shenton, who is one of those people with multiple, I suspect, full-time jobs. I think uh, probably up all night as well as all day. Uh, a, f- a few of your job titles, I don't. I realise I don't really know very much about. What, for example, an antiquarian? I'm not sure I'd know what that is if it's not an historian. Or what? What, what do you do? Um, well, I'm all sorts of things. I'm a, an archivist. I'm a historian. Um, I belong. To, I'm a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries, which is uh, just a learned society for people interested in. Uh, the collections of the past, um, and and I'm a writer. But my, my job here at Westminster, um, I work for the Parliamentary Archives, which is uh, the uh, the archive of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and we have records going back to the 15th century. Uh, we are open to the public Monday to Friday, uh, 10 till 4. Anybody can come in um, and consult our records. Um, you don't need a letter of introduction or anything like that. Um, and we'd be very pleased to see you. Uh, what we do ask you to do, though, is just to make an appointment with us by phone or email, and you can check out our details on the Parliament website, www.parliament.uk slash archives, um, just because we have limited seating space, so we want to make sure that you're guaranteed a seat. And what is it that somebody who rocks up with their appointment, what are they going to be faced with? Uh, 
Well, uh, you, if you come into our search room, uh, or indeed if you search online um, on our online catalogue, uh, you'll find a whole uh, range of records that might be of interest to you. People sometimes think that the Parliamentary Archives hasn't perhaps got something that's relevant to them. They think, oh, perhaps it's just, you know dry stuff about um, about Parliament and maybe about politicians. Um, but actually, uh, we have a lot of collections that are of interest to people, not just interested in politics, but who are interested in their local area or their family history. So, for example, we have lots of uh, local history plans um, relating to railways and bridges and um, town developments. So anybody who's interested in the local history of their immediate area may well find um, some fantastic plans um, showing their very back garden, perhaps, where um, a train line uh, passes by um, from the 19th century. Because in the 19th century, and indeed still today, if you're a train company and you want to build a line, uh, you have to do that by Act of Parliament. And you have to deposit a plan with Parliament of what you're planning to do and these are fantastic local history sources Um, and similarly if you're a family historian uh, up until the middle of the 19th century if you wanted to be divorced or... <laughs> if you wanted to be debauched. Debauched, no, possibly that. But if you wanted but to be, divorced first. If you, wanted to be, you can be debauched any time you like, but to do it by an act of parliament. <laughs> you can, if you want to be divorced, uh, you had to do it by act of parliament. Similarly, if you were from abroad and you wanted to be naturalised, you had to do it by act of parliament. Um, so we have some really interesting um, records of um, people's divorce cases and um, uh, immigrants to this country um, who um, who've decided to become British citizens. Um, so there's a lot more that we've got than people might imagine. And we've also, of course, got some fantastic collections relating to the building and to the art in the building as well. Of which there is a huge and impressive array. I think I know that there's Hansard, which keeps a minute-by-minute minute record of what's going on in terms of debates. Uh, what's your relationship with the library here and the people making that sort of record? Well, Hansard, uh, there are two Hansard departments, one for the Commons and one for the Lords, and yes, they provide a, um, a transcript of the debates uh, that go on in the chambers each day. Those are available online, also in printed form, and um, we have copies of those both electronically and digitally in the archives. Um, but we have a huge range of other records as well. So we have all the Acts of Parliament um, going back to 1497, when Parliament got its own separate administration. Uh, we've got all the bills going up um, to that period, select committee reports, select committee evidence, um, up until um, recently the House of Lords was the Supreme Court of the UK, so we have appeal cases which came to Parliament uh, to be considered by the House of Lords from the 16th century onwards. Um, we have that huge array of deposited plans that I've just mentioned, um, all sorts of administrative records relating to um, the running of Parliament. Um, but of course, we've also got a lot of records relating to state occasions and royal occasions because here, just coming back to here where we are today, um, Westminster Hall was the location for, for example, coronation banquets. And so we have tickets to coronation banquets uh, and uh, all sorts of interesting royal occasions like that as well. Um, I'm curious, with that period just after the records begin... Uh, and things are sort of settling into a a more stable uh, way of doing things. Do do you get a sense as you look through the records, I mean maybe it's stated explicitly or or maybe opinions are given, of what people are thinking of this new way of doing things? Um, 
not really, because Parliament, unlike in many other countries in the world, Parliament developed very, very gradually over time. And although, in fact, here at the Parliamentary Archives we've got records from 1497, there are records earlier than that. The first use of the word Parliament is 1296, sorry, 1236. Um, and the earlier records are at the National Archives at Kew. But it, it, it gradually develops very very slowly over time so there's not a sort of big bang oh here's a new way of doing things um what do we think about it it just sort of creeps up on people really um so there's 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 not as there's not a, a big bang reaction to what it's like to have a parliament but there's certainly plenty of reaction in hansard and uh, the sort of petitions that ordinary people were sending into parliament to be heard about what they thought about their current lives and um, the lives of their neighbours and what was going on in the country at the time in general. Uh, I guess the question I want to ask them would have to encompass that as well, but also maybe the the, the, the procedures and the conventions and the um, administrative architecture within the institution. Here, what would you say, is, perhaps since that point, have been the biggest changes? Uh, clearly, there have been big acts uh, and reforms which would affect uh, perhaps the way people vote. So you talked about the Reform Act, for example. Um, but, but what about within these walls? Within these walls, there are, there are, there are great... Um, great moments like um, the the passing of the Bill of Rights uh, in uh, 1689 so the point at which Parliament says to the monarch actually these are our rules and this is what we expect you as the monarch to do that's a that's a major turning point and um, in more in more recent years in the 20th century for example um, in 1958 the Life Peerages Act which changed the um, the composition of the House of Lords um, so that um, not only could life peers um, uh, sit in the House as well as hereditary peers but also women for the first time could sit in the Lords. 1958? 1958, yep. It's a slow-moving beast. <laughs> it is, but it got there in the end. <laughs> when you mentioned the Bill of Rights, it of course has echoes of Magna Carta, um, just because it's one of those points at which people turn around to the monarch and said, no, thank you very much. In this case, it was the, the barons, of course, who were uh, deciding how things would be done and what their influence would be. And it's a big year for Magna Carta. That's correct. And uh, Parliament is celebrating... Uh, Magna Carta, just like everybody else in the country, hopefully is celebrating uh, Magna Carta 800 years ago uh, this year, uh, along with a series of other big parliamentary anniversaries as well, uh, including the 1265 uh, de Montfort Parliament. So that's 750 years since uh, the first parliament that called uh, people from the shires to come and represent their areas, so proto-MPs, if you like. Um, it's 750 years as well. So with this twin anniversary, Magna Carta and the De Montfort Parliament, we're really, uh, we're really about to start to launch into uh, a really big year for Parliament. Si- Simon de Montfort is one of the rebel barons um, in the middle of the 13th century, and uh, it was really um, at his instigation that the King, uh, Henry III, as it was then, was uh, constrained to call this Parliament uh, for the first time, which allowed people from the localities to, to come and have their say. So two two knights of the shire from each county uh, came along to parliament to represent their areas because the word commons doesn't mean common people as in you know low people it means commons as in communes as in um, local uh, societies 
so sort of subdivisions of society? Yes. Um, it means um, uh, communes, as you get in France. When we say we're celebrating Magna Carta, I imagine uh, that for a lot of people, and for, I think it was uh, on a subconscious level, there was a big group of school children just passed us by uh, as you were talking about that, and I thought it, if I was being told that we should be celebrating Magna Carta, I couldn't be more bored, probably. And yet, as, as somebody interested in the fabric of, uh, of the, the city, the country, um, I want to get fired up about it. Why should we care about Magna Carta? Well, Magna Carta for some people is certainly a very obscure document and why should they care about it? The key thing about Magna Carta is that in 1215 it was the the first time that the monarch um, had been made subject to his own laws um, and it contains within it, at its, at its core, buried deep within it, um, some key principles of... Um, uh, justice, which have echoed down and are still cornerstones of our constitution today. So, um, the right um, not to be imprisoned without a charge, uh, the right to ultimately to right to a fair trial and a trial um, ultimately by jury. It doesn't actually say trial by jury in Magna Carta, but it implies it, and that's at the core of uh, Magna Carta and um, a very important. Um, part of it, another another important part of Magna Carta, which is still with us today as well, and of interest to Londonist listeners, um, is um, that it upheld the rights of the City of London. So, um, the City of London, the Corporation of London's independence today, is uh, one of those guarantees in Magna Carta that is still with us. And we famously don't have a written constitution, so it sounds as though that's about as close to a constitution as, as we've got. Well, we do have a written constitution. Oh, we do? Uh, well, now, hold on, what? Uh, we, do, <laughs> we do have a written constitution. Uh, it's just not in one single document. Uh, so we have a series of constitutional uh, developments and laws that are scattered over a range of documents. What we don't have is uh, sort of a single constitution document like they do in the States or in France uh, or in, in newer democracies where they have what they call the basic law. Um, uh, in this country, our, um, our constitution has developed over time, but it has certainly been codified. Is, is that similar to the way that our legal system works then, that it's all by precedence and it's sort of gradually built upon all the time? That's right, yes. But um, certainly things are definitely written down. Oh, well, that's, that's uh, very important news for me today. Um, we've sadly come to the end of our time. Um, I've got to rush off because I've got a house full of tally sticks that I've got to get rid of. I'm just debating how to do that. What are you working on at the moment? I'm working on a sequel to The Day Parliament Burned Down, uh, which is due to come out in 2016. So watch out, watch out for that then. Do, do we have any previews or secret information about it? Uh, well, it's the story of the rebuilding of the Houses of Parliament and um, hopefully it's going to be a gripping read. And, uh, of course, people can find out more about you and the project as it develops at uh, your website by Googling you. What's your website? My website is www.carolineshenton.co.uk. <laughs> Actually, is it? Is it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> Maybe it's org.uk. <laughs> also, I tweet at Dust Shoveler. So. <laughs> um, Caroline Shenton, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. My heart And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Caroline Shenton. Thanks too to Mark Barr and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a stone's throw from your front door